the gunpowder plot of the 5th of November 1605 was a government fabrication. That's the suggestion we just can't help coming up with here at the History Café. This isn't just a silly conspiracy theory. We've put all the government's evidence to the test of historical reliability and looked at all the contexts, especially the court of King James, the Jacobean Parliament and the history of rebellions. Above all, by 1605, there was a long history, going back decades, of the Cecil family fabricating entrapments and scams to wrongfoot their opponents at court, do down the Catholics and push Parliament around. Robert Cecil was now Chief Minister and the gunpowder plot fits exactly the profile of their earlier inventions. The question is, did it achieve what he needed it to? Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, let's see what happens. So the gunpowder plot has all the hallmarks of a scam created by Robert Cecil and his family's well-honed outfit of intelligencers and torturers. There was a Catholic rebellion in November 1605, but it was a conventional rising in the Midlands, which never raised much support and was over and under a week. But in the old family tradition, Cecil took this existing, largely harmless rebellion and turned it into something much more spectacular. As we've seen, he then used it to undermine his enemies at court, especially Harry Howard, the Earl of Nottingham. But the plot's main target had always been Parliament. It was Cecil's job to get government business through Parliament. But the last time Parliament had met, in 1604, it had been an unmitigated disaster. King James was profligate and running out of money, but the Parliament voted not a penny in tax, it was something that had never happened in all the 45 years of Queen Elizabeth's rule. Parliament met again on the 5th of November 1605, and this time Cecil absolutely had to find a way to make it behave. Discovering 36 barrels of gunpowder just inches beneath its feet was a brilliant ruse. Blaming the Catholics and then producing a whole clutch of rebels, captured of course miles away during the Midlands Rising, completed the trick. But did it make Parliament any more compliant? The historian of James's Parliament, Conrad Russell, writes that the plot changed the whole atmosphere. On the 9th of November, King James came to Parliament himself. It was an unusual thing to do, but then these were unusual times. His previous visits in 1604 had been catastrophic and had ended in shouting and bitterness. This time, he sweetly told the peers and MPs how he, personally, had saved them from death by fire, quote, most raging and merciless. He all but apologised for his bad temper the year before. He'd only ever had the country's interests at heart. And MPs quickly voted through taxes worth 400,000. It was almost as much as the largest tax ever voted to Elizabeth, and that had been in 1601 in the middle of a war. And then in 1606... Watched by the severed heads of the plotters Robert Catesby and Thomas Percy fixed on spikes above, Parliament went on to vote through two acts for the repression of Catholics. 
they gave the king the power to seize the Catholics' lands. No Catholic could even come within 10 miles of London. Like the Nazis' anti-Semitic laws of 1933-5, Parliament legislated that no Catholic could practice law or medicine or possess weapons, let alone hold a commission in the army or the navy. Soon, new laws would force Catholics to wear a red hat or multicoloured stockings. Just shocking, isn't it? Exactly like the laws against the Jews. It's shocking. Cecil, whose family had a long history of extreme Protestantism, must have been rubbing his hands. So far as he was concerned, as he told the Venetian ambassador, the point of the new laws was, quote, undoubtedly to extinguish the Catholic religion in this kingdom. Well, outside the circle of hardliners like the Cecils, that had never been the intention in England before. But it certainly looked like it was now. There was, as historian John LaRocca has shown, an immediate and, quote, impressive rise in the number of convictions for recusancy, that means Catholicism. In 1606, a massive £10,210 was levied in fines from Catholics, compared with just over 2000 the year before. With his Lord Treasurer's hat on, Cecil was able to make even more from the lands he seized from Catholics who were unable or unwilling to pay. On one day alone in 1606, he made over £9,000. Levies from Catholics were almost paying for the intelligence network that was spending so much of its time tracking them down. So Cecil's bid to push Parliament into voting more taxes and cracking down on Catholics had succeeded beyond what were probably his wildest expectations. Rivals at court, particularly the Earl of Nottingham, were on the back foot. Nor was that all. Behind the scenes, Cecil went on taking massive bribes from the Spanish, who knew there was now no alternative but to keep him on side. Besides his annual pension from the Spanish of £1,000, Cecil took a bonus of £12,500 in 1608 and £11,000 in 1609. It's probably about £1.5 today. So Cecil was laughing on the way to the bank. Well, not exactly. At first, the gunpowder plot must have looked as though it had solved all of Cecil's many problems. Parliament voted huge taxes and his rivals at court were, for a while anyway, silenced. But Cecil was too much hated and his difficulties too profound to be swept away, even by an entrapment on the grand scale of the gunpowder plot. All too quickly, it began to unravel. The MPs who'd been elected in 1604 and had sat in 1605 went on meeting on and off through 1606 and 1607. They went on bickering with Cecil, rejecting every proposal for compromise. King James's favourite project, the Union of Scotland and England, got nowhere. Whatever his successes in 1605, Cecil doesn't seem to have found any new reliable way of managing the House of Commons, or at any rate managing it the way his father had in Elizabeth's time. More and more, Robert Cecil resorted to calling conferences between the two houses, MPs filing into the Lords where he could harangue them himself. There were no benches for them to use, and some complained they were kept standing for so long they were lame for weeks. After the session of 1607, Parliament was sent away and didn't reassemble until 1610. And then, once more, Cecil's plans, this time for a kind of contract to sort the King's finances out, were completely rejected. 
After seven months, this Parliament was sent away, having achieved hardly anything. Hmm. Now Parliament didn't meet again until 1614, by which time Cecil was dead. That session lasted only two months. It then didn't meet until 1621. Cecil's stratagem, his grand gunpowder plot, had had no lasting effect. Except, of course, life undoubtedly became much harder for English Catholics. But even then, King James did his best to fight Cecil and protect them. They had to take a new oath of loyalty, but if they did, then they could play pretty much the same part in society as anyone else. James continued to include Catholics like Northampton in both his Privy Council and Privy Chamber. The Queen went on hearing Catholic Mass. When, desperate for money in 1610, James invented the new title of baronet and began selling it off at £1,095 a time, he allowed Catholics to buy it just like anyone else. Increasingly frustrated, Cecil resorted secretly to asking Sir Charles Percy, whose brother, the Earl of Northumberland, he'd imprisoned after the plot, to petition James for more fines against the Catholics. And Percy refused. James also went on being wasteful and difficult. In 1607, he paid off debts run up by three of his bedchamber men, totalling £4,400, nearly a million in today's money. Not only did he continue to waste his time hunting he actually began to talk about being above the law. Worst of all, Cecil was more widely hated than ever. Within days of the discovery of Guy Fawkes, gossip was spreading through London that Cecil had known about the plot all along. It very rapidly turned into the accusation that he'd made the whole thing up. Some of the French in London were said, admittedly by a not very reliable witness, to have written the gunpowder plot off as, quote, a fable. The whole thing just stank of fraud. Lord Monteagle, who was supposed to have tipped the government off, was rewarded with a very comfortable income for the rest of his life. In fact, of course, he'd owed Cecil a very large favour since being released from the Tower in 1601 and was in constant fear of ending up back there because of his Catholic contacts. Meanwhile, the storeroom under the Lords, where the gunpowder barrels had allegedly been found, although nobody was ever actually taken to see them and no statements were ever taken from those who had supposedly made the discovery, the storeroom went on being let out to anyone who wanted to take it. Nobody ever seems to have imagined it could really be used, actually, to blow Parliament up. By 1606, Cecil was so fed up with the continued speculation that he'd made up the plot, he commissioned Ben Jonson to write a play about it. Jonson was, of course, a playwright, but as we've seen, he was also one of Cecil's intelligences. In fact, he'd met Catesby and other alleged plotters and may have known about the Midlands Rising all along. The play that eventually appeared was called Catiline, His Conspiracy, and it was about an ancient Roman plot that involved arson mm -hmm, and the murder of many of the Roman Senate. Cecil had probably got the idea from a script on the same story that his father had commissioned in 1588. In Johnson's script, Cicero, who's clearly meant to be Cecil, saves Rome, quotes, from the flame, the Senate from the sword, and all her citizens from massacre. Well, the references to Cecil and the blowing up of Parliament were too laboured for any audience to miss. In the play, the senators, obviously the members of Parliament, declaim, quotes, we owe our lives unto him and our fortunes. And Caesar, obviously King James, adds, and our wives, our children, parents and our gods. The play ends with the hero Cicero, Cecil, coming on stage and thanking the gods, 
quotes that I am now paid for all my labours, my watchings and my dangers. When the play was premiered, he was booed off stage. The playwright Johnson mused ruefully that the audience had loved the rest of it, but hated Cecil, sorry, Cicero's pompous oration at the end. But then Johnson, like so many others who knew Cecil, detested him. That last speech had perhaps always been a stitch-up. The gunpowder plot then had been a triumph for Cecil in the short term, but as the months went by, it did him no good at all. His rivals went on flourishing at court. The king went on ignoring and abusing him, and Parliament went on refusing to do as he wanted. Cecil went on being universally hated, booed off stage. So why, of all the plots Cecil and his family have fabricated between 1571 and 1605, do we still remember the gunpowder plot today? why do the British still let off fireworks and burn bonfires on the 5th of November today? Everyone except St Peter's School in York, where they have fireworks but no bonfire, because it's Guy Fawkes' old school. Well, on the first anniversary, the 5th of November 1606, people were forced to celebrate by going to the established church. The Parliament had passed a law ordering, quotes, a public thanksgiving to Almighty God every year on the 5th day of November. In fact, it wasn't removed from the Anglican Prayer Book until 1859. The fireworks began that very first year, 1606. The next year, the town of Canterbury let off nearly 50 kilos of gunpowder. By 1610, they were orchestrating their explosions with music. Tradition of burning a figure on the bonfire began in 1625, but in fact it wasn't Guy Fawkes, it was the Pope, who shared the privilege with the devil. And all this was in fact a protest that King James's son Charles had married a French Catholic princess. Uh, but the official calendar under James had plenty of other public holidays at which bonfires were lit, including the King's accession the day he came to the throne, his birthday, his coronation, and his escape from a Scottish plot he claimed had set out to assassinate him in 1600. But we've long forgotten all the rest, so how and why did 5th of November outlive all the others? Partly, of course, it has to do with the prejudice against Catholics that ran long and deep in English society and, as we saw in our very first discussion about the gunpowder plot at the History Café, profoundly coloured the way even historians wrote about it until very recently. That's the reason 5th of November survived the Civil War and Protectorate, 1641-60. to During those years, Cromwell, Oliver, and the Puritans even banned Easter and Christmas but of course, 5th of November survived because it was a victory over the Puritans' arch enemies, the Catholics. Then in 1688, 5th of November had an unexpected shot in the arm when, on that very day, the Dutch Protestant William III landed at Brixham. He brought his army ashore, marched towards London and forced the Catholic King James II into exile. After that, Pope burning on the 5th of November lived on as a double celebration. Now Guy Fawkes didn't replace the Pope as the man in the hot seat until after 1800, when laws against Catholics in Britain were finally beginning to be relaxed. Historian James Sharp suggests it might have been because people thought that Guy Fawkes was either Spanish or Dutch, countries which at that time, the 1800s, were occupied by Britain's arch-enemy Napoleon. But it soon became apparent that the public had a sneaking affection for Guy Fawkes. 
Sharp reckons using guy as a fond word for a young man dates back to 1818. After what's known as Catholic emancipation in 1829, the ending of most of the rules against Catholics, 5th of November became a day for unofficial anti-Catholic disorder, often muddled up with the working class tradition of mischief night. In the town of Guildford, for example, young men ran amok wearing dresses with their faces blacked up. Many children used to learn the poem Remember, Remember the 5th of November, Gunpowder Treason and Plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Well, that seems to have appeared around 1870, though some of it may be well, at least 100 years older. Certainly even today, 5th of November fireworks show no sign of going away, though probably fewer and fewer people have any idea what they're celebrating. What we've been suggesting at the History Cafe is that we perhaps shouldn't be celebrating anyway. The gunpowder plot was the work of a vicious, torturing and intolerant regime. We argue that it was a murderous fabrication that led directly to a number of brutal deaths and contributed to harsh religious persecution that lasted for centuries. We've suggested that historians perhaps need to take a fresh look, setting the plot not in the context of the hopelessly inadequate documents that supported, supposedly, but in the context of a string of similar plots dating back to 1571. These were snares and traps in which Robert Cecil and his father before him fabricated and entrapped innocent, or more often not quite innocent people, for their own benefit. In 1605, the intelligence outfit Cecil's father had developed under Elizabeth was functioning in the same slick, secretive way it always had. This is a context you just can't brush aside. Nor can you ignore Cecil's deep weakness at court and in Parliament, and his anti-Catholic prejudice, Cecil's need for the gunpowder plot and the way it fitted his purpose are strong reasons to think twice about it. One of Cecil's victims in 1605 was Nicholas Owen, the brilliant designer and creator of many of the refuges in which Catholic priests had hidden from Cecil's intelligences. Owen had been badly disfigured by torture in the 1590s. After the gunpowder plot, he was put back on the rack and tortured to death. He died on the 1st of March 1606. He was 44. On the 25th of October 1970, he was recognised as a saint of the Catholic Church. By contrast, Robert Cecil died on the 24th of May 1612. He was 48. It was immediately clear that very few thought of him even as the man who'd saved King and Parliament from destruction. Instead, the news of his death was greeted with a flood of jeering, mocking pamphlets. Fresh libels come out every day, wrote one Londoner. Quotes, the memory of the late Lord Treasurer grows daily worse and worse. His practices and jugglings, in other words, his shady plots, come more and more to light. Those who may best maintain it have not forborne to say that he juggled with religion, with the king, queen, their children, with nobility, parliament, with friends, foes and generally with all. Now jeering at the recently dead was a common sport in 1612. Mocking public figures, not only the Cecils but also their enemies, as well as leading churchmen, even the king, with daily entertainment in the taverns then as now. But the scorn and venom poured on Cecil seems to have dwarfed everything. He was bitterly criticised for taxing everyone else but dodging taxes on his own enormously increasing wealth. He was hated for seizing and enclosing common land around his houses. 
he was never forgiven for having engineered the death of the dashing Earl of Essex in 1601. Cecil was damned, it seems, by almost everyone as rapacious, scheming and immoral, quotes, a monster of mischief. Leaving aside all the cruel mockery of his disability and the scurvy which disfigured him and ultimately helped kill him, there was widespread satire of his sexual appetite. Cecil was widely believed to have divided his time between two mistresses. Many, wrongly, believed he died of venereal disease. Quotes, Come with your tears, bedew his locks, death killed him not, it was the pox. Despite a determined campaign by the Cecil family and a close circle of associates to publish his praises after his death, the overwhelming verdict was that the man had indeed been a monster. Quotes, oppression, lechery, blood and pride, he lived and, like Herod, died. What's important for us is that it seems that virtually nobody at the time had trusted Cecil. Nobody remembered the gunpowder plot or looked back to the official account of it in which Cecil had played a central part. When he died, Cecil was remembered as lying and self-serving. We've been trying to suggest it's therefore very peculiar and odd that historians, with all the extensive documentation of corruption and abuses that surrounded him, should trust him now, and above all, the account we believe he constructed of the gunpowder plot. As they said at the time, the king's misuser, the parliament's abuser, hath left his plotting, is now a rotting. Despite all the papers he left behind, no historian has yet been able to face writing his biography. His most lasting achievement turns out to be two stories, the gunpowder plot and the very strong suspicion starting at the time that he made the whole thing up. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. <laughs>